hospitality is about people. If you don't like people, stay away. You have to empathize. You know, you, I'm also a customer or a guest somewhere else, right? We all are. And you can never forget that. You can never forget the position that that person is on the other side of the line. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. I am your host, Stephen Toberoff, and I've been very much looking forward to this episode because There's so much going on in the hospitality space in general and in New York City in particular right now, and I cannot think of two guests who are better situated to comment in a meaningful and impactful way on all of the various dynamics at play. So without further ado, I want to introduce the co-founders and co-owners of Heroes and Villains in New York City in the Essex market, Matthew Chapina and Jason Cruz. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Steven, thank, thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. Yeah, really looking forward to this. Same here, Jason. So as I was researching this, you guys both have a very impressive and a very uh, significant background in the food service or the hospitality space. So why don't we start with Matthew and then Jason. If you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself from the beginning and and sort of what led you to Heroes and Villains with your background in the restaurant industry? Okay. Some of my early jobs were in food. When I was 15 and 16, I started cooking. I grew up in Long Island and I can't say exactly what it was about it initially, just some fascinating kind of business. And I just always loved food, but I uh, initially, I saw myself, once I got into working in food, I quickly realized like this was a passion for me. And I really like the energy and the, all the challenges that the food business presents. So some of those early jobs were in food and trying to find my footing. Thought I would go to culinary school out of uh, high school, but sort of went on a different path. And for several years, I took a break from food. But then in my 20s, I got back into it after college. And I've been in it ever since. I've uh, started line cooking around New York, worked for several different places, lots of different concepts. But the turning point for me was I started working for Colexico. Are you familiar with Colexico, Steve? Very much so. Colexico is a, a great restaurant concept for people who are not in New York City. I'll let you describe the cuisine because I, I want to make sure it's precise. I know it's Mexican, but there's various variations of that, but I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, it's a Calmex brand. It's a real place in California. It's a kind of a border town. Not coastal, you know, it's in Finland. They were fairly new at that point when I started working with them. They had just opened up their first brick and mortar in, in Red Hook. And I got a job just as a wine cook. Happened to be walking by. I saw they were looking for a cook. I came back. I heard about the brand, but didn't know much about it. Got the job. And then, you know, and then the, and I called Colexco home for about 10 years after that. And as the company grew, I grew with it. And I like to think it was just, uh, it's not necessarily that I got along so well with everyone there. It's just that I proved that I was a hard worker and I was available. I was willing to do a lot of a lot of different jobs. So it just sort of grew with the company. As they started opening up stores, I was doing that with them. 
and eventually got to the point where I was the culinary director for the company. And that was the last several years of my employment there. And that's super impressive, again, for people that are not from the New York area. Calexico is a phenomenal group of restaurants in the city that's been growing. And that's an incredibly inspiring journey, going from where you began as a line cook to taking on responsibilities of such a substantial enterprise. I'd never been in a management role before, so a lot of it was just learning as you go. But the great part of being with a company like that at the point in its development was similar the owners and other people that were involved were in a similar position of kind of learning as they were going. So we all did that together. So that was my first introduction to management, running a team, costing, you know, all those back office sort of uh, tasks that are not very exciting. They don't make exciting like food TV sort of. They are exciting, Matt. It is very exciting. (laughs) exciting. I get the the goosebumps when we're talking about margin. It's exciting to people in the business, right? It's not, but to me, it's exciting, obviously, and to other people like me. Then just learning on the job. So that's most of my career was that way. I never, you know, like I said, I wanted to go to culinary school when I was a teen and never did. And, you know, didn't do it then. And then I still didn't do it. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't regret that or I don't think it necessarily was, a, was the wrong decision. It, it is what it is. So I just went into the profession and just dove in. And that was my, my way to learn how to really run a business and deal with people and deal with vendors and, and all those uh, aspects of the job. Yeah. And two things, and then I'm going to turn it over for Jason. But one, it is very exciting. And it's the very reason I started this podcast, because there's so much content out there that's geared towards foodies and recipes and that aspect of the restaurant business, which is very important and exciting. But so many restaurateurs who have great cuisine and have enthusiasm, but lack the business side or the managerial side, they have mm-hmm. problems. And, and I felt that that was an important area to be explored. And I would also just add very briefly that starting as a line cook and evolving the way that you did probably is the best management school a person can ever go through because you oh understand every aspect of the process versus somebody who comes in from top down. So that was yeah. very good. So Jason, tell us about yourself and what you've done in this industry and the journey that led you to Heroes and Villains. Yeah, well, I, you know, first of all, I'll just say, you know, Matt and I go back, you know, like 20 years, we've known each other. And so when he talks about when he was working at Colexco, I was living in Red Hook at the time with a buddy of mine and going to that spot and seeing him and eating that food. And I've seen his journey in all the different positions and roles he's taken. So that's been great for me. Yeah, I'm, again, I'm a Brooklyn and Long Island guy as well, working in the mom and pop uh, Italian joint, going to different franchises, mostly front of house. My largest tenure was with Be Our Guest, working at the former Atlantic Grill on the Upper East Side. And I had a wonderful number of managers in that time who worked with me, who shared their knowledge. I was a bartender there. Very kind of community hangout, seeing guests three, four times a week. And it was just about those relationships and dynamics and seeing how that business worked. It was such a successful store for them. I miss it, you know, but I I know that transition from there to then working at Heroes and Villains with Matt because of that is I think is is why we are where we are and we're able to do what we can do. 
Absolutely. So let me ask you this, because it's a theme that's run through a few of my guests, Home Freed and Bananas, and that is Smorgasburg. And I know they're just opening up a location here in Jersey City. So just talk to me a little bit about how you guys utilized Smorgasburg as a way to sort of perhaps craft or explore. Just tell us a little bit about that, because it's becoming more and more well-known in as in, as I say, New York and in Jersey City, and it's been a great launching pad. Yes, Smogenberg is essentially a food festival that happens Saturdays and Sundays in Brooklyn in several locations, and it attracts tens of thousands of people. You have to pitch them to get a spot because it's, it's 100 vendors roughly, so it sounds like a lot, but there's like thousands of applicants. So you have to go to their office and you pitch them with your food and you do that whole thing. And so I did, and, and they said yes. So... It's a minimal amount of uh, startup costs and a really great way to test the waters and to see if your concept has any legs, if you think it could be profitable, if you think it can really be a, a real pursuit. Some vendors are at Smogusburg, they're like lifers. You know, they've been there since the beginning. A lot of people pass through. Everyone has very different experiences. You know, the first year that I did it was really just the learning curve more than anything else, seeing really how to operate in that space because you're essentially doing the catering every day. Like you're packing up all your stuff from wherever it's coming from, the tables, tents, and all the food and all the inventory. You're showing up at this location, you're setting it up. People show up, you're there all day, you know, and then you break down, clean, you go back, you unpack all your stuff. So it's this movable feast kind of thing, right? And so first year was, uh, was a big learning curve to see what worked. About midway through that process, was when I landed on a fried chicken sandwich, which we call the Sando Calrissian. It's like a fun name play on a on a Star movie Wars. character. Yep, and then uh, that's the idea you know, behind the brand. Really, just briefly, is that's why it's heroes and villains. Is there's the names of the sandwiches and the dishes all sort of have pop cultural references. All the things that we think are fun. So we try to have a lot of fun with it while being really serious with the food. And that was where that sandwich originated from. And it's become a signature. And what you learn quickly at Smorgasburg is you have to hone in on one or two things and try to do those really well and sell those, right? And that's what I learned in year one. So when we came back in year two, all it was was just the Sando Calrissian. It was just like, we're going to be the fried chicken sandwich place at Smorgasburg and be the specialty. And just people are coming there looking for that. That's who we were. And uh, in the process of uh, operating this side project while still you know, at my other job, was I really started to see that this was something that I, I wanted to try to pursue. And how could I make this into a full-time concept? How could I really turn this into a legitimate business that's not just seasonal and once a week? And around that time was when the Essex market on the Lower East Side was getting ready to relocate just across the street on Delancey Street to a new home in the Essex Crossing development. This six or seven building complex that was being built and the Essex Market, which is the oldest continuously operating public market in New York City, had been at its location for about 80 years. They were going to be given a new updated home. All the old vendors were moving over, but they were adding some space and allowing for about a dozen or so new vendors and mostly prepared food vendors. So there was an open call in the same way that like with Smogasburg, you pitched them the idea. So I said, well, let's give it a shot. So created a pitch, reached out to them, 
and they were bringing in I don't know how many people, but a lot of a lot of concepts. And you had to go there, and you met the people from the Economic Development Corporation, and um, laid out your your concept and try to tell them how you would fit in and how you would be a great fit and all that. I'm familiar with it because we have a few of our other customers there. Yep. And, yep. and I'm glad that you'd brought it up. So you had already made the decision that you wanted to take the heroes and villains concept from Smorgasburg to a brick and mortar. Yep. Was the Essex market something where you said, ah, this is the exact venue that I, I think this will work in? Or was it a different iteration where you were thinking, I want to take it to a brick and mortar, and then this was the, the best opening? Or was it one of others that you might have pursued? It was one of others at the time. It seemed like the next logical step in the evolution space wise it's roughly the same as your 10 by 10 space at smogusburg but it's fixed right it's seven days a week it has electricity and gas and running water <laughs> it has all those things that like a real restaurant has but you're inside this market so it has a similar approach or feel that like a food festival would have but as food indoor markets have become so much more popular, I think people are really familiar with the concept of a food hall. So that's why it just felt like going from once a week to seven days a week, a place like Essex Market or other kind of a market would be the right way to go versus trying to raise some funding and then just opening up a standalone store somewhere in the city or, or elsewhere, which is a much bigger leap from where we were at Smogusburg, you know. Now, something you, you said before, which I'd be curious to get your guys' thoughts on, because I think it's so important, as I was listening to you, Matthew, is you learned from real interaction with customers that the most popular item was the fried chicken sandwich, and that's what you focused in on to differentiate in Smorgasburg. As you evolve, and, and this is something that I think a lot of new restaurateurs and others in the hospitality business struggle with because people want to make a name, they want to establish their credentials. But at the same time, if you can find those areas that you're really good at, that you're really confident in and double down on your strengths, that's sometimes the best strategy. As you've gone into the Essex market and through the evolution of heroes and villains, do you still focus in on sort of leading with this one sandwich, this one offering and branching from there? Or have you found other offerings that you like to put on almost equal footing as a way to engage with new customers or even your regulars? Yeah, well, the menu expanded. You take the simplest fried chicken sandwich we have, which is the Sando Calrissian. And how do you make different versions of that and expand on that? Because you know you're going to run into people that are going to be looking for something that's like spicy or something has a different sort of a garnish to it. So yes, so we through the process of dealing with customers, which is great, in an Essex market or a Smogsburg, you're only like you're two feet away from the person who you're dealing with. Like there's no front of house staff and then back of house staff or all front and back of house staff. So you get that immediate interaction and see their reaction when they take a bite of it or they smell it or they look at it, they take a picture of it and they post it on Instagram. So that's really rewarding, but you gain all that data from having those direct interactions and you hear what people are looking for. Or you just throw something out there too as a special and you see what lands. And if you run something for several weeks, you're going to get the data pretty quickly and you're going to see whether people are taking to it or not. And that's something that I learned back in my, when my career at Colexco was we didn't put anything on the menu that wasn't vetted 
100% road tested, crowdsourced, and we were confident putting it on a menu because we all loved it and can really stand behind it. So people ask us now, you know, you're dealing with a customer and they say, oh, is that good? How's the sando? Is it good? And you sort of jokingly say, if it wasn't good, we wouldn't sell it. You know, we wouldn't have it on the menu. We love everything that we have on our menu and stand behind it and keep it pretty tight. Uh, A lot of that is because of spatial concerns, because it's very small space and we do all the prep there and it's a hundred percent scratch kitchen, meaning that we make all the sauces, we make all the everything that chicken paste hand butchered and brined and everything is made there. Everything's pickled. The only thing we don't make is the bread, but everything else is made there. So we have a lot of those considerations to come into play and you learn quickly how do you utilize different sauces and garnishes on a different item while still trying to make the new item special? So you don't want it to seem like you're just repurposing everything. You have to be unique on its own, but still find ways to have cross-utilization. And that's just smart cooking and smart business decision. You have to behave that way. Otherwise, your food costs go crazy and your prep is not right and you're kind of chasing your tail all the time. So one of the trends that really went parabolic over the last, let's call it 16 months, although it was present before, which is takeout and delivery. And and that became something that was obviously in, in massive utilization. Now, the great thing about Essex Market, among other great attributes, is you get exposure to all different kinds of people who are coming there for different types of cuisines. But how do you market to the community that would want to get a, a delivery or pick up or take out from you? Is that something you do in a specific way that you have any specific strategies you use? Or is it word of mouth from people who have come into your brick and mortar at the Essex Street Market? Yeah. So I think, you know, what we learned is when the market is filled with people, every vendor does well. For sure, we looked pre-pandemic at getting delivery up and running. We didn't start with that. And it's an important revenue center. And figuring that out is very important. It's its own kind of P&L in a way. I think that even I made the mistake and was fooled a little bit by the revenue being generated. But then really, what are we coming off with at the end of the day? And how do we make that work for us? So it's been an ongoing process. I think we just kind of figured it out to some extent. I mean, Matt and I were just discussing recently how our delivery numbers are higher tickets than pre-pandemic. And I think we're making better money there. I think there's a lot of room for us as a company to really put our priority in, in marketing in terms of delivery, but also also just as a store here at the market. It's important to make the, the difference between where we are and where a lot of brick and mortar stores are. And when you're a brick and mortar store and someone wants to come in, they're in with you. They're going to get something off the menu they're in. I think when people generally come to the market, the menu consists of all the different vendors. And so everyone's walking around. And what I find to be super helpful is just engage the guests. I work behind the bar. So, you know, someone walks in the door, I'm there with a smile. Hi, welcome. How are you doing? And I think that that works for us in a lot of ways. People are just kind of walking around and they go, oh, wow, someone just talked to me. Oh, hi. Yeah. Oh, cool. What do you do here? And then we just get that conversation going. There's definitely times when I will just pop out 
and just kind of walk through the menu, what we do with people, that's super helpful. They're getting a little bit more of the story of what we do, the narrative of us, you know, making our food from scratch. I find that people, once they get a taste of our flavor, they're back in. And so there are so many different components there. I definitely want more delivery. Just to get back to the question, <laughs> I want to get more delivery. I think it's important, but it really is. There's a fine balance, a lot of math that needs to happen there in order for companies to make sure that they're getting the value from what they're doing. Also, I'll just add this in. Matt and I are, we're sauce. We're saucy. You get a little messy when you eat our sandwiches. We love that. That's part of what I do. Part of what we feel is important. If your hands aren't dripping with sauce, then we didn't do our job. It's made from scratch. It's made with love. And so we really have to think about how we package our sandwiches. A lot of sandwiches just get rolled up in paper. And if that just gets to your house and you're opening it up, it's just, it's a downer. I feel. And so the experience of when you're in the market and you get the sandwich made, then you bag it up. Someone drives it over in whether it's in their car or in their bike with other packages. It's a very different experience. Absolutely. And I think that your answer is really filled with actionable strategies because just getting out there and explaining to people about the menu and explaining to them that you're a scratch kitchen creates a level of engagement and a level of potential brand loyalty that is so valuable and probably would not be understood had you not taken the time to explain to them. Because sometimes people will read through written information if it's there. I had a guest on, maybe it was a month or so ago, and one of the things he was talking about, he was a marketing guy for the restaurant industry, and he was talking about how in a place like New York where you have so many people walking and it's a walking city, the utilization of QR codes by people's windows. The utilization of just being able to reach out and talk to people is so important. So I think that the way you're using that unique environment in the Essex Street market makes all the sense in the world. And I also think the attention that you're paying and the questions you're asking about the delivery aspect is so important because you're absolutely right. Someone comes in and has a phenomenal experience with your brand because of how it's created and how it's meant to be enjoyed. And if it doesn't translate in the delivery, that's a problem because it's not a real reflection of your brand, and that's good. So let me ask you, so you're in the Essex Street Market. In that environment, do you feel that most people, when they do come in there to eat, that they're going to take an offering from a few different locations? Or do you find that they'll just look around if they haven't already been there, find one place that catches their eye? The reason I ask is because that can also create unique decision-making challenges and choices based upon how the consumer behaves within that environment. Stephen, look, you, you bring up a really valid point. That's a lot of what Matt and I talk about. We have a lot of discussions about this. You know, I think we spent time before we came to the market, just visiting different markets in and around the city. You know, we'd spend hours there. We'd have our meetings there. We just kind of watch different places. We would buy different things from different places and be a split ticket guest. So we understood how that is going to play a factor when we move to the market. We see that sometimes it works for us. There are definitely people and it's so wild because there's the pre-COVID times and then where we are now today. As the groups are getting back together, everyone does want a little taste of everything. So we definitely lean into having some of those offerings. And then we created new product lines in order to fix that split ticket. There's definitely the mom who wants to get some fries and chicken nuggets for her kid. 
and then introducing our bowls, which I'll kind of let Matt get into, just created the avenue for her to stay with us and buy something less kind of fast foody and more healthier, the salad, so we can kind of keep all that revenue in-house. And what you were saying, Jason, led me to, to the question I was going to ask Matthew anyway, which is, you had alluded to it before in one of your earlier answers, but when you, you've talked about the various strategies that need to be utilized in order to enhance profitability and to run the restaurant properly in terms of using the products for you know cross-purposes and food costing, et cetera. My question is, is as you created this menu, Matthew, and this is, I think, a common challenge that new restaurateurs have, so your guidance will be helpful. When people create a, a menu, sometimes they neglect to think about certain key factors, such as what are the multitude of guests I might have, uh, who is my target audience, and they focus more on themselves. When you did the menu creation of Heroes and Villains, how did you go about that process in terms of putting the items on that you felt had to be there or that were a reflection of what you wanted to do as a chef versus those that you knew needed to be there in order for it to be an impactful business for everyone? Well, to be completely honest with you and about the process, in the beginning, I definitely fell into that same trap of like, oh, what am I interested in? If I'm interested in it, that means that everyone else is going to be, or enough people are going to be interested in it, that that would sustain itself, right? But you do learn very quickly that that's just a misguided way of thinking. You don't have to have something for every single person that passes you by because that's just impossible you can't please everybody but you do have to be fairly balanced and pretty open-minded about what you're doing and it's great because a lot of the the challenges that we've uh, had to face as the company has evolved and this goes all the way back to the smorgasburg days really is being confronted at a moment where you have to turn and say well we feel like we're missing there's a, a section here of a demographic that we feel like we're missing. How do we fix that problem? Does it involve bringing in new ingredients and negotiating that? That's a really exciting aspect to me of the business, of developing the company, the brand, and exploring and opening up different ways of identity of the brand. Because we started with just one sandwich, right? That's <laughs> like a just that one sandwich. And then there were byproducts when the trimming happened that turned into the chicken nuggets. We call them nugs. And we saw right away that those were really popular. And then we take the chicken sandwich that we had and how do we make several different versions of it? All the way up to the present where we have our chicken and we have the, the nuggets and there's usually a surplus of it. That found its way into the bowls that we developed. We developed those really because it's post-pandemic aspect of the menu. And we saw that we were missing out on people that were looking for something a little bit healthier, but also at the same time, sort of like a fuller meal than just a, a single sandwich or a side of fries. So we took all of our sandwiches and we just developed them into bowl form, which is with our salad, like a really nice but really simple salad with you know, lettuce and some pickled elements and a balsamic vinaigrette. And it's really great. And it's a great contrast and balance for the other ingredients that are in there. We've been doing that since the beginning, evolving as we see the need for something. And we're still doing it to this day. We're constantly R&Ding ideas and trying them out as specials. And if something feels right, then it's right. And then we just go with it. And we, we make sure that the costs are all in line and we do our homework in that way. But then we can, like I said before, we put on the menu, we stand by it because 
we think it's great. And we've, and because it was road tested, we saw that, that there was a market for it. There's something that I, I wanted to add in it, if I may. And that's when we started at Essex, we had the Santa Carissian, the classic fried chicken sandwich. And what we were getting a lot of feedback from guests were, hey, can we throw cheese on that? Can we have like a chicken and cheese? And we kind of held back on that. And I think what it led us to do is say, okay, instead of just throwing cheese on the chicken, how can we make this its own really wonderful new chicken sandwich? And through that process, we kind of settled on making it more a deluxe version of our classic chicken sandwich. And that's how we got to our Proud Mary, the cheese sauce, the bacon, the roasted jalapenos. I mean, that's one of our top sellers, a lot of great press on that. And it really just came from having that open dialogue because the market is telling you what they want. And it's the same as in terms of the Black Savage, which was one of the sandwiches that Matt started in Smorgasburg, the pickled soft boiled egg, it's wrapped in falafel, a lot of great Mediterranean Middle Eastern flavors in there, the house-made hummus, the marinated eggplant. And when we reopened after our, our, our COVID closure, we held back on that for a little bit because the numbers we played the probability, are the vegetarians gonna be out or not? And we're like, let's just lean heavy on burgers and fried chicken they're hanging out at home. They're not going anywhere. But I do have to say, when we reintroduced that sandwich and we opened it even more for other vegetarian options, boom, they all came out. And as a company, having those great items for everyone to taste, it really helped us increase the revenue that we were not only able to generate, but it really falls in line with our brand because we're really just about creating flavor from scratch. And that's what we have to just keep leaning into. That's what we continue to lean into. There's some really exciting stuff that we're playing with now, just in terms of other grains, other vegetarian options, going gluten-free. These things are important for people. It's important for us to be just communicating this with our guests, our regulars, You know, even new people when they call, when they reach out to us an email on Instagram. It is important that we just kind of keep open. We're still new. We're a new company. Yeah, we knew, we have some things that are very successful, but I think where we are and where we're going, there's still a lot of a lot of space for us to explore as business owners. To expand a little bit on what Jason's talking about, when we opened a little over two years ago, when the Essex market, the new Essex market was brand new and it was a big opening and it was exciting. If you had asked us then, if we would have had salad bowls on the menu, <laughs> it would have, yeah, really, just like we would not have identified ourselves in that way. And to have them now and also for them to be such drivers that they are, and in a very short period of time, we were talking about just several months that we've been doing this. And when you look at the PMIX and you, you see how impactful those have been and the vegetarian options, again, go back to that point, the market's telling us something. So we're going to follow that and we're going to see what other things we could be doing. And then where does that go? So in a year from now or two years from now, from this conversation, I'm sure there's plenty of things that will be there that we're not thinking about right now. They are borderline laughable. Again, that's really interesting and exciting. Well, you know, as I'm listening to you guys closely, what I find so impressive about you guys is that first off the level of humility, because Yes, the market will speak and teach us a lot if we're open-minded and listening. And a lot of times people are arrogant and a lot of times people are closed-minded. 
And particularly with both of your backgrounds, if one wanted to sort of be self-important and feel that they know everything, you have the credentials to do it. But I've always found it's the people that are the most credentialed and the most, uh, how shall we put it, qualified. The ones that are really successful are also the most humble and open-minded and willing to learn and adapt. And this is so important for people that are listening. The second thing, and this is more of a macro point, is one of the great things about the hospitality industry, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this concept, is the following. In our industry, guys, when you act in a kind and human and thoughtful manner, it's almost always the best business decision as well. As I'm listening to you guys, you're always talking about your guests. You're talking about the quality of the food and making it from scratch. You're talking about wanting to be responsive to people's needs. That comes from a place of empathy. That comes from a place of humanity. Yet it's also the very decisions that need to be made to be such a super successful business. And I just think that's something really cool about the hospitality space, you know? Well, I I agree. I think that I'll speak for Jason. We both agree. I think that using the phrase hospitality industry, that word hospitality, is that's a very important word. And you tend to find higher levels of hospitality in a place where maybe you're spending a little bit more money. There's a certain clientele. There's a different expectation. I think often just wherever you go, you know, not just in New York, wherever it is, if you're in a more fast-paced fast food or in a food hall, I think that there's sometimes a lack of hospitality, lack of personality, a lack of warmth. And we decided right from the beginning that that's not what we were going to behave like. We were going to behave as if you were coming to a standalone, traditional, higher-end restaurant. So Jason's not being hyperbolic when he's saying, when people walk by, we engage with them. We train all of our staff that Someone stands there, they pause, they're looking at the menu, make eye contact, greet them, ask them if they have any questions, make people feel really comfortable. We have learned that from experience that you instantly engage, you draw that person in, very often you're going to make a sale. You're going to make that person feel good about coming there. You're going to make them want to come back. That is like at its core what we're all trying to do is develop a customer base. We're trying to survive. We're trying to make money, but we're trying to serve a great product and make people feel good about it, about coming to us. And we genuinely believe that we do a fantastic job at that. I think that we've seen that over the years of having a really great customer base. They're mostly neighborhood people and people really love coming to us and engaging with us. And that cannot be overlooked. So I a hundred percent agree with you about that area of this business, you cannot underestimate how important that is. Jason, go ahead. You were going to say something? Yeah. There's like so many stories I just want to pull from. (laughs) I will say this. When we opened in 2019 at the Essex Street Market, I think in terms of we were putting in a lot of hours, a lot of talking, we're a new brand that we're trying to introduce to the neighborhood. I was definitely just pulling out all the stops. And at one point, I lost my voice. I got uh, like a <laughs> laryngitis. And I thought like this. You couldn't even hear what I was doing. And it was, it was Matt and I. And we had to switch positions. Mm-hmm. And so it was really Matt at the counter and me cooking the food, which was great. I mean, I grew up watching PBS cooking. I cook at home. So the skill set was there. And just Matt 
I think he talked about the background, you know, he can take anyone under his wing and teach them the skills that they need, right? And so one of the things that was really beautiful for me to see, very different, this was the first time Matt was talking about his food to guests. You know, he spent so many years at Smorgasburg cooking, just pounding away, just cutting chicken, cooking, cooking, cooking. And now here's his opportunity. And I was just watching. He was blooming. He was talking. The guests were so happy. I was just cheering. You couldn't hear my muffled cries because I had no voice. And it's just something that I saw. And it was a very important thing for me to say, like, we've got something here. You know, it shouldn't just be you making food. We have our team. You should be into the mix as this as well. Matt and I, one of us are always there at the shop. There's definitely days when we're both there at the shop. It's really important to engage guests. I think I mentioned earlier, Be Our Guest Hospitality is all about the guests. That's kind of my pedigree and where I came from and that neighborhood feel. Hospitality is about people. If you don't like people, stay away. You have to empathize. You know, you, I'm also a customer or a guest somewhere else, right? We all are. And you can never forget that. You can never forget the position that that person is on the other side of the line. And if someone's having a hard time with something, someone has a question, whatever it is, put yourself in that person's position and don't be so arrogant to think like that they either know the answer, uh, you know better than them. Empathy is a really key component to that. And again, can't be overlooked or underestimated. No, definitely. And it's as I'm listening to both of you, you're engaging with your customers on what I would call the highest level plane, by which I mean the following. Everybody, I think, knows that you need to be friendly, you need to be engaged, you need to do all that. But customers, and I know you guys have seen this firsthand, and this is becoming more and more the case, they love it when they get to really speak to the chef or the owners and they learn mm -hmm. about the cuisine and they learn about the process and they learn about the inspiration. Now you're creating a bond you know, it's not even just a customer relationship. It's it's really that type of a bond. And I think especially with you guys, with such a phenomenal story to tell, it's such a valuable part of your brand. And I think it's something that a lot of restaurants overlook because people don't want to do that or whatever. They just don't put the focus on it. But when you're engaging with people on all of those different levels, you know, you're building a loyalty. And I, I could go on and on with this and I'm really enjoying it. But I, I want to ask one, and maybe you'll indulge me with two questions, but one I have to get in here because there's been so much information that you guys have shared that this is really, I would consider, a masterclass for people who are aspiring to open a restaurant and have yet to do so. And so I want to ask a very specific question because we have a lot of listeners who are entrepreneurs. We have listeners who are already established, but we have a lot of people that want to get into the business in one capacity or another. And so my question would be for the both of you, what one mistake that you made early on would you share with somebody to avoid because it was something you learned from? Because again, these things are lessons so that when people begin their journey, they're armed with that insight. Yeah, well, there's such a great question. There's so many different ways we go. There's a, a couple of things that I'll kind of just keep at the forefront for that. One is it's math, it's numbers. And that just means for me, I have to just, look things over three or four more times because that's just not my natural gift. And so it's really important to look over numbers We're talking about what products cost, what they're going to be sold for, those margins, your labor, they're just the fundamentals. They're the 101. Sometimes 
you know, think, oh, I don't, I don't need to worry about that. I'm selling a lot of food. I'm selling a lot of food, but the business then may not be sustainable. And then the second part is just being open and listening because people will tell you what they want and what they don't want. And you can keep trying to sell the thing that's not working. It's important to just listen, stay open. And if you trust your brand and you know what you're good at, you'll still be able to continue to sell something through that filter. And it will be honest and true to where you want to be. Yeah, I think you have to be adaptable right from the beginning and be very open. So as Jason's saying, and be ruthless with yourself in terms of if something's not working, something's not selling, people are, are responding to something, get rid of it. I think you can't be precious about anything. I mean, this speaks a little bit, I think Jason and Hyde's like other sides of us where it comes from the arts, the net in the theater program. And you have to be really ruthless and willing to, as the expression is, you know, kill your babies. Uh, and you have to scuttle something if it's not working and adapt quickly to fill that void with something else, you know, editing, things like that. I think that perhaps a lot of people fall into a trap. Was something that you mentioned earlier, Stephen, about being really arrogant about something that you're selling or your brand or something like that. That might work for some people, but I would say more often than not, it maybe comes off as either uh, disingenuous or people just aren't reading it the way you think they are. So you got to figure out a way to get them on your side by adapting and evolving. So that's nuts and bolts kind of stuff in terms of like math, but it's an attitude that you have to decide right from the beginning that that's how you're going to behave in order to survive. Mm, that discipline. You know, this has been such an absolute pleasure. And I would just say, for, for those of you that have emailed me with questions about different aspects in business and those entrepreneurs, and certainly people who are just getting started, this is an episode that you're going to want to listen to again and take some notes on because I've been taking notes and there have been so many gems that you guys have shared in terms of what is necessary and what is really essential in running a successful business as a restaurant and in the hospitality space. And I absolutely want to say for those of you who are not from New York, but are now that things are opening up, going to be coming to New York City, you absolutely want to check out the Essex Street Market in the Lower East Side. It's a great part of New York City. The Essex Street Market is on 88 Essex Street. Heroes and Villains is in location number 41. You can find these guys on their website, www.heroesandvillainsnyc.com. Check out the website. It's great. The sandwich names are extremely creative, and you'll learn a lot from looking at it. Or you can follow these guys on their Instagram account at heroesnyc. Jason and Matthew, thank you guys very much. I really, really enjoyed this, and uh, I learned a lot. Thank you. This was uh, amazing. We really appreciate your time. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Stephen, thank you. Listen, I got to say, this is an amazing podcast. There's just so many wonderful guests that you have on. I'm a listener. I'm a fan. So thank you. Keep doing what you do. What's great about this podcast is that the conversation we had today and other, the other conversations that you've had with other guests is it's really about the business of the food business versus recipes and specific dishes and some of the other stuff that can be perceived as a little like kind of flashier and approachable, but this is really this amazing information that you learn on your episodes and just keep looking forward to the next ones and the next ones. This is really great. No, I really appreciate it. And what's cool about it is people, I think, know that 
one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult businesses to succeed in is in the restaurant business. And in New York City, take that to level 10. And so what I'm finding is people who are just interested in business, even if it's not hospitality, can learn yep. so much because if you can succeed in this. And again, guys, this was really terrific. So I thank you both very much. And it was an absolute pleasure having this time to talk with you. Thank, thank you. you, Stephen. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.